right, welcome everyone. Today is uh, the first Friday in November, November 7th, 2014, and we're going to be talking today about pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency with Dr. Peter Stackpole, who is from the University of Florida. Welcome, Dr. Stackpole. Thank you very much, uh, Christy. I hope you can hear me okay. We can hear you great. great. Let me just remind everyone that there are slides to follow along with today's presentation. So if you're listening to the recording, you should just find the post about today's presentation by searching PDCD for pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency, and then look for the link to view the slides so that you can follow along. Dr. Stackpole, before we get started, I just wanted to um, introduce you and make a couple comments. I was very grateful to make the connection with you because I had the sense from reading about your work and from having conversations with you that um, you have a, a dual interest in both the research that can help us understand how to treat mitochondrial diseases, which we're going to learn more about today, um, as well as a specialty focus for patients in particular who have congenital pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency, and that you also have a real compassion for these patients and the journey that parents of children with PDCD and, and really in the broader category of children with mitochondrial diseases, of what they go through in seeking treatment and trying to understand what really seems like a very complex disorder. Um, it's, it's worth mentioning that Dr. Stackpole is um, well-trained. He's been at the University of California, uh, Vanderbilt in Nashville, and is currently um, at the Department of Medicine, Biochemistry, and Molecular Biology at the University of Florida, and uh, has robust research, which is linked on the MitoAction page, which you can um, read a little bit more about. But Dr. Sackville, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you. It's a great pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for some time. I'm going to take you through a uh, series of slides, and I will try to remind you to uh, when I go to each successive slide. And I'm very happy to stay as long as you wish with any questions that you have at the end of this talk. So if you look at the title slide, it says, Between Scylla and Charybdis, Navigating the Straits of Clinical Trials from Drug Discovery to Drug Approval. So we're going to start off with a little uh, reminiscence about uh, classics. Uh, you may recall from geography that there is a very narrow strait called the Strait of Messina that uh, uh, is between uh, Sicily and the tip of the boot of Italy. And this has been a hazardous journey for seafarers. And according to Homer, who wrote uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, when uh, Odysseus was making his return trip home from Troy, he had to pass through the Straits of Messina. And according to Greek uh, mythology, the reason why this was so hazardous was because on one rocky shoal, there was a multi-headed monster that was called Scylla. And on the other side was this deep, huge whirlpool called Charybdis. So Odysseus had to make a difficult choice. He had to decide whether or not he would steer his ship closer to Scylla and risk having a few of his men being taken by this multi-headed creature, or risk losing the whole ship by going near, and perhaps too near, to the uh, whirlpool. So as legend has it, Odysseus tried, uh, decided to go by Scylla 
had a few of his men uh, picked off by this creature that made it safely through and, and eventually home. So this is a dilemma that um, we often face, and certainly uh, I've, uh, I've faced, in trying to navigate the, uh, the often rocky shoals in, in drug development, especially for rare diseases and particularly for uh, PDC deficiency. And if you look on the same slide, you'll see what I'm talking about. This is the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, which I'll abbreviate as PDC. It's the largest enzyme in our bodies, and in fact, in most animal cells. And it has a critical uh, and unique role to play in essentially converting substrate fuels like carbohydrates into energy. It does so by converting irreversibly the molecule pyruvate, which is a molecule formed in the cytoplasm by glycolysis, to acetyl-CoA. And in doing so, the PDC links glycolysis in the cytoplasm to the tricarboxylic acid or citric acid cycle or Krebs cycle, goes by many names, in the mitochondria. And that's shown uh, by going to the next slide. And I titled that Energy of Life because um, really all cells need ATP in order to survive, in order to perform their normal functions. And what you see here in the left-hand side of that slide is how glucose in the cytoplasm gets broken down to pyruvate by a process known as glycolysis. Pyruvate has many fates. It can form amino acids for protein synthesis. It can form uh, a backbone for fat synthesis. It can also be interconverted to lactate. And you all know that uh, one of the potential problems with PDCD, and with many other mitochondrial diseases, is lactic acidosis. And that occurs in large part because there is an inefficient conversion of pyruvate into the mitochondria that can then be acted on by the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex to form acetyl-CoA. So what happens is, is that glucose carbon from pyruvate enters the PCA cycle, and then the PDC and various enzymes in the TCA cycle generate electrons, essentially. And these electrons, these negatively charged uh, compounds, then traverse what we know as the respiratory chain. It's often called the electron transport chain. And ultimately, that respiratory chain is charged with two major functions. One, it converts the oxygen that we breathe to water. And secondly, it converts ADP, adenosine diphosphate, to ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is the major energy source for all cellular work. So you can see that the PDC plays a pivotal role in cellular energy metabolism. And as a consequence, when things go awry with the expression or activity of this critical enzyme, energy failure may supervene. All right, let's go to the next slide. Now, the natural history of uh, PDCD uh, has been reviewed by us and by others. And it's clear that any of the component parts of the PDC can be mutated and become dysfunctional and lead to PDCD. 
The vast majority, however, of the mutations that give rise to PDCD are found in the what we think of as the sort of business end of the molecule, and that's the E1-alpha subunit. And that's the subunit that actually lops off carbon dioxide from pyruvate, leading to ultimately the conversion to acetyl-CoA. Most children with PDCD have their clinical onset within the first few days to weeks of life. Oftentimes, when children are diagnosed in the neonatal period, they are diagnosed because of unrelenting lactic acidosis. And in fact, PDCD is probably the most common cause of congenital lactic acidosis. But regardless, the common clinical signs and symptoms are very similar to what is seen in many other types of mitochondrial diseases. And they involve cognitive and physical developmental delay. So mental retardation, uh, problems with uh, developmental milestones in terms of rolling over, sitting up, walking, talking, etc., are delayed. Weakness of the muscles, hypotonia, is common, and sore seizures. In a review of these uh, of these cases, we found those to be the most common uh, signs of PDCD, but there are many others. As I said before, the commonest cause of congenital lactic acidosis, especially in the newborn period, is PDCD, and that means that there is an increase in the blood and or the cerebral spinal fluid of lactate. Generally, the ratio of lactate to pyruvate is within or just slightly above the normal range, so there is an elevation of both lactate and pyruvate. And that makes sense because PDCD deficiency blocks the utilization of both those molecules in the same proportion. Now, if you image the brain with PDCD, you see a lot of potential structural abnormalities, the most common being enlarged ventricles and atrophy of the cortex. Well, nature affords a vacuum, so as less brain tissue is available, then the ventricles, which contain the cerebral spinal fluid, enlarge to fill that vacuum. There are many other structural abnormalities uh, that can occur in children with uh, with uh, PDCD, and one of the most common is Lee syndrome. This has very distinctive uh, neuroimaging findings, and as you probably know, there are many potential underlying genetic causes for Lee syndrome, but one of them is PDCD. Unfortunately, the outcome of children with uh, PDCD is poor. Many patients died in the first months or a few years of life. For those children who are born with uh, severe neonatal lactic acidosis, very few of them live to survive in neonatal intensive care unit. However, there are exceptions to this general rule, and there are clearly uh, patients who have relatively milder mutations, and they live for years and sometimes reach uh, adulthood. Now let's turn to the next slide. So, PDCD certainly qualifies as a rare disease, but really, what is that definition? Well, it's a definition, actually, that was defined by Congress. But it was, but Congress was prodded by uh, an unrelenting group of parents like you who lobbied for congressional action to help clarify what a rare disease was and to establish 
a congressional action that would help provide a mechanism for not only recognizing rare diseases, but also helping to develop new treatments for them. About five or 6,000 diseases in the United States qualify as a rare disease, which means that there are less than 200,000 Americans at any given time with that condition. And that means a substantial number of Americans are affected. Historically, funding for rare disease research, not only the basic laboratory research, but clinical research and drug development, fell into what we call a valley of death. The potential new therapies, oftentimes discovered by investigators at academic health centers, would reach a certain stage where because of limited uh, financial reward, drug companies were loath to undertake further development of these drugs, even if they were patentable. And particularly if they weren't patentable, then there was really no interest. So the problem is, is that many of these drugs languished on the shelves and never got to the stage of licensing, clinical testing, and approval. The Orphan Drug Products Act of 1983 helped to establish uh, mechanisms by which funding could occur and protection for uh, drugs that were approved for rare diseases could occur, essentially along the same lines of having a regular type of patent, albeit for a short period of time. And that's led to now hundreds of drugs that have been approved for various types of rare diseases. However, there are no FDA-approved drugs for any primary mitochondrial disease, as I'm sure you are painfully aware. Well, what about a possible therapy for PDCD? And here we come to a discussion of dichloroacetate, or DCA, which I said is vinegar with a kick. And the reason is, is because the molecule that you see in the top of the slide is such a simple thing as simply acetic acid, which is vinegar, except that two hydrogen ions that are normally attached to one of the carbons are substituted by chlorides, and that makes it dichloroacetic acid, except we provide it as the sodium salt, so it really is sodium dichloroacetate or sodium DCA. And as an investigational drug, it's been used for many years for the treatment of genetic mitochondrial diseases, including PDCD, and the doses that are usually given are milligrams per kilogram of body weight per day. Increasingly, the use of DCA is now being considered for many other conditions, and I'll come back to that at the end of the talk, and then I'll surprise you about what those conditions might be. But the other thing that's uh, curious about this uh, molecule is that you can't avoid it. You are exposed to it no matter what, because it is ubiquitous in our biosphere. It is a metabolite of some classical industrial solvents, one of which is called trichloroethylene, or TCE, and, that is, and DCA is a breakdown product of that. It's been used in the airline industry, in the dry cleaning industry, etc. However, the most common exposure that humans have to DCA is as a disinfection byproduct of water chlorination. So any water that, is, that undergoes chlorination uh, has tiny amounts of DCA. You can drink it, you can wash with it, you can wash your food with it, you can swim in it, whatever. And because of its ubiquity, it's also present in fog and rain. Now, the critical thing to know is that the amount of DCA that you find in your environment is about one ten thousandth the concentration that we administer to patients for the treatment of disease. 
So while the molecule is the same, the amount of exposure is vastly different. Let's go to the next slide. How does DCA work? Particularly, how does it work to regulate the activity of PDC? Well, here's the schematic diagram that essentially is much simpler than what I showed you earlier. Remember that glucose can be broken down in the cytoplasm to pyruvate. Pyruvate traverses the mitochondrial membranes and is converted by the PDC to acetyl-CoA, which then enters the TCA cycle and ultimately yields energy in the form of ATP. Now, like many very important enzymes, PDC is very tightly regulated by lots of checks and balances, but the most dominant check and balance is, is facilitated by what we call reversible phosphorylation. Now, what that means is, is that <coughs> there is a phosphate group that when attached to PDC, phosphorylates it and renders it inactive. So it's no longer able to convert pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. This reaction is catalyzed by a certain enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase, or PDK. The opposite effect can occur, whereas a phosphorylated form of PDC can lose its phosphate group and reconstitute the active enzyme, and that is facilitated by an enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase phosphatase, or PDP. DCA acts by inhibiting the action of PDK, pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase. Therefore, it prevents the phosphorylation of PDC and keeps it in its unphosphorylated active form, so the process of pyruvate conversion to acetyl-CoA can proceed. And that is the fundamental mechanism of action that occurs throughout all the cells, including the, uh, the brain, the heart, the liver, uh, the muscle, etc. Let's go to the next slide. So, encouraged by how the drug works and by uh, some early anecdotal reports that were populating the scientific literature, we thought that the drug might have benefit in children with congenital forms of lactic acidosis. And not just with PDC deficiency, but with other types, such as uh, uh, mitochondrial DNA mutations, uh, respiratory chain defects, etc. Because of its fundamental action on improving the activity of this key regulator of energy metabolism cells. So, based on that, in the early 1990s, uh, had a child brought by his parents who came to the University of Florida who had PDC deficiency. His name was Alexander. And he and his mother came because Alexander had PDC deficiency. And we all thought that there might be a chance that we might be able to help Alexander with DCA. Alexander was a lovely little boy who was 18 months old. His lactic acid level in his blood was abnormally high. He was unable to visually or from an auditory standpoint track stimuli. In other words, if you looked at him, he wouldn't necessarily see you or track if you moved, and he wouldn't necessarily track uh, noises as well. He was also very floppy, and he was not able to sit up on his own, despite the fact that he was 18 months old. Well, we decided to give uh, Alexander uh, a dose of DCA, and within about an hour, he was, for the first time, able to track auditory and visual stimuli. And over the course of that day, his lactate level became normal. The next morning, following the second dose of DCA, much to the amazement of the people there, including his mother, 
Alexander sat up unaided. And after a few days, we sent the family home back to California with uh, DCA. And over the course of the ensuing months, they would send us videotapes of home physical therapy showing how Alexander was making progress in developing his milestones and becoming stronger. This uh, gave the, fam the parents enough confidence so that for the first time since Alexander's birth, they felt comfortable taking a vacation. As soon as they flew from uh, Southern California to Utah, where they were going to go skiing, they got off the plane and they had a phone call from the local physician who said that Alexander showed some early signs of having a, uh, a little uh, infection, a, a respiratory infection for the the sake of, uh, of being overly cautious, he decided just to observe him in the hospital. The parents then left Utah, flew back to California. By the time they got there, uh, he was in the intensive care unit, and within three days of hospitalization, he was dead from a, a respiratory viral infection. And for those of you who have children who suffer from mitochondrial energy failure, regardless of the cause, you know that uh, they are they have a hard time often mounting an effective response or defense to the exigencies of life that uh, most of us can handle and other healthy children can handle without difficulty, whether it be a respiratory illness, a gastroenteritis, an asthmatic attack. All these things require more energy. And if your cells are not able to meet that demand, then they are not capable of defending themselves adequately, and that was the case of uh, Alexander, who died because of inability to mount a successful energy response, and that is a common mode of exit for children with primary mitochondrial diseases. Well, over the course of time, we had uh, a number of other children who we examined for their response to PDC deficiency, and many other investigators around the world started publishing case reports of uh, patients who seem to have a beneficial response to the drug, at least in terms of lowering the lactic acid level, and sometimes in terms of potential clinical benefits. So we decided that this was enough information and compelling information to conduct a clinical trial. So let's turn to the next slide, and let's take a few minutes and talk about what a clinical trial is so that we're all on the same page moving forward with DCA. A clinical trial is essentially an experiment, but instead of being conducted in tissue culture or rats, it's conducted in humans. They are the experimental subjects. It is a prospective study. In other words, you can't go back to the literature and comb medical records for data and call that a clinical trial. You can use that kind of information to help substantiate the reason for doing a clinical trial, but a clinical trial is prospective, meaning that it's conducting something and then one looks over the course of time forward to determine whether or not that intervention happens to be safe or effective. Oftentimes it involves a brand new drug or it can involve the novel use of an established medicine. For example, you might use a drug that was uh, previously approved for the treatment of diabetes or high blood pressure in another condition, say for the treatment of cancer. Well, that drug is approved for the first indication, but not for the second. So that has to go through a lockstep process of clinical trials to evaluate its safety and effectiveness in that new indication. 
In any event, all these studies require an investigation on new drug permit that is held by the sponsor or the investigator. Oftentimes, an academic uh, investigator may be the sponsor for those trials, or it may be a biotech or pharmaceutical company that holds the, uh, uh, the permit. Now, conducting a clinical trial is not trivial. It requires teamwork among a number of different types of professionals with complementary expertise. And these include not only physicians, but oftentimes laboratory-based scientists, nutritionists, research nurses, statisticians, etc., that collectively come together to design and implement these trials. And common venues for rare disease trials are academic health centers like the University of Florida. So these are common places where patients come to be treated for investigational treatments. And again, to remember that there are no FDA-approved therapies for any primary mitochondrial disease to date. Next slide shows the various phases of a clinical trial. The first one being so-called phase one trials that involve oftentimes the first time a drug is used in human beings. And that is usually, but not always, conducted in healthy volunteers. And here the purpose is to establish safety uh, of the drug to make sure that the doses that were uh, really just at from based on preclinical studies are safe and one can look at different doses and also determine how the drug is handled by the human body so we can measure how the drug is cleared from the body. So we get basic information about the human pharmacology of this new drug. The next stage is a phase two trial and this may or may not be blinded and I'll talk about blinding a little bit later. Blinding as opposed to open label studies where everybody knows that they are getting the drug and the investigators on the subject know that. This is often conducted in the target population. So in this case, it might be conducted in PDCD patients. Uh, in patients uh, treated with hypertension for drugs with hypertension, they would undergo a typical phase two study. And here you're also looking at safety measures and how the drug is handled to make sure it's not any substantial differences between healthy people and the people who are diseased for which the drug may be intended. And we're also getting hints of efficacy during the phase two trial. And then finally, the ultimate test is a phase three trial. And a phase three trial is what we call randomized, double-blinded, and oftentimes placebo-controlled in the target population. And here we're looking for hard data for safety and efficacy. Now, when I say randomized, what I mean is, is that that means that sort of by a flip of a coin, a patient may be allocated to either the active treatment or to a placebo. Double-blinded means that neither that patient nor the treating physicians or anybody else directly involved in the care of that individual knows when that patient is receiving the placebo, when that patient is receiving the active material. So that a placebo-controlled study that is randomized and double-blinded means that patients are either allocated exclusively to placebo or exclusively to treatment, or in what's called a crossover design, they may receive a placebo for a period of time and then the drug for a period of time. But under those circumstances, nobody knows when. And the reason for doing this is to is to ensure that bias, either on the part of the patient and his or her family, and on the part of the investigator, does not enter in and color the attitudes of people who are evaluating the response to treatment. 
and these are stipulations that the federal government imposes. So if you look at the next slide, one would anticipate that there have to be checks and balances to ensure that even patients, even though there is a double-blind study going on, there are there is enough oversight to ensure maximum amount of safety uh, of the individual who participates in these trials. And that means that it has to go before the Food and Drug Administration. And before the FDA can approve a drug like this, that may require one or more pivotal phase three trials and may or may not uh, take into account any kind of foreign studies that uh, have used that drug. But ultimately, these safeguards include not only the FDA, but also for the institution that is carrying out that trial, an institutional review board or an IRB, where the ethical aspects of the trial are monitored. And for a particular trial, there is a trial-specific data safety monitoring board that is comprised of both experts in the field and statisticians and lay people or ethicists that have no part in the actual conduct of the study but are able to look at the unblinded progress of the trial as necessary and to recommend uh, changes in the protocol or premature stoppage or uh, of the trial, either because of unanticipated efficacy, in which case treating patients with placebo would be unethical, or unanticipated toxicity, in which continued treatment of the, of the interventional drug would also be unethical. So many checks and balances when you participate in a clinical trial to ensure safety. The next slide shows that we, the results, of the first randomized controlled trial of any therapy for congenital lactic acidosis that we published in 2006 from work conducted at the University of Florida in 43 children whose average age of entry was 5.6 years. And this, these 30, 43 children comprised 11 children with PDCD and the remainder had respiratory chain defects with or without known mitochondrial DNA mutations. And the basic outcome is shown on these two figures, these two tables. The first one on the left shows that compared to placebo, DCA was significantly effective in lowering blood lactate levels, even after feeding children a high-carbohydrate meal, which often precipitates or exacerbates lactic acidosis. So that was good news because it meant that DCA was a potent lactate-lowering drug and that potentially could allow liberalization of diets for children, including children with PDC deficiency who are often treated with a high-fat or ketogenic diet. On the right-hand side, you see some uh, results from the evaluations of the, the clinical impression, essentially, of nurses, neurologists, pediatricians who were participating in this study, who saw the patients and followed them over the course of time. And when the blind was broken, we found that there was really no, no real uh, effect of DCA that could be discerned by these observers. In other words, it didn't seem to be significantly better or worse than the placebo. Now, the problem with reliance on this measure was that until that time, there had never been any kind of validated measures of clinical outcomes for children with mitochondrial diseases including PDCD. So we had to sort of make them up as we went. And so we recognized the limitations of this, and we knew that the clinical measures that we uh, that we 
created might not be sensitive or specific enough to capture what we wanted, but nevertheless, we had to start from somewhere. And found was that there was no obvious uh, clinical benefit. However, we continued on open-label treatment a large number of these individuals who were willing to continue to come back to the University of Florida for years and take DCA and open-label treatment. And what you see on the left-hand side is that over the course of time, there was continued lactate-lowering effect that could be measured both in the blood and in the CSF fluid bathing the brain and spinal cord. So that DCA did not lose its efficacy as a lactate-lowering drug. On the right-hand side is even something more intriguing. We tracked the survival of these children, and we separated them into those with PDC deficiency and those who had other types of congenital lactic acidosis. And what you see in the middle, middle graph is that over the course of about a decade, there was about a 40% um, uh, mortality rate. However, most of that accounted, were accounted for by deaths in the non-PDC group, which is shown in the dotted line on the bottom. If you look at the top line, which is the solid line in this graph, only one child out of the, one, out of the ones with PDC deficiency died during the course of this 10-year follow-up. So that made us wonder whether or not we were really, really needed to focus in the future on PDC deficiency as a means to improve morbidity and possibly mortality in this otherwise devastating and ultimately fatal condition. So we found ourselves on the next slide between a rock and a hard place, which is the modern uh, uh, phraseology which we use now to say between Scylla and Charybdis. On the one hand, we had a non-patentable molecule. DCA is so simple, it's been around for so many years that no company was really interested in it because it couldn't be patented and protected. And besides, the first trial that I just showed you didn't indicate that any obvious clinical benefit occurred. On the other hand, we had a rare disease, and research, researching rare disease is very tough to do, and in some ways even tougher to fund. And it's very hard to do clinical trials. There are lots of reasons why that's hard, because of a rare disease, you have to cast a huge geographic net in our clinical trial, we had children from throughout the U.S., from Canada, from New Zealand, and Australia that came to the University of Florida for this trial. That's hard to do and replicate. And the possibilities were that maybe we shouldn't do this and, and devote our energies to uh, greener pastures, uh, more common uh, conditions, and uh, better funding opportunities. Well, we decided that... Uh, Perhaps schools step in where lies and through to tread. So we decided to generate uh, the ground for a pivotal trial of DCA and PDCD based upon the results of that first trial and our continued understanding of this drug and its action on that enzyme. So we have been working with the Food and Drug Administration for the last year and a half to design a pivotal phase three trial of DCA of four years duration that will recruit between 24 and 30 children between the ages of one month and 18 years at the time of entry. It is placebo-controlled, it is double-blinded, and it is a crossover trial, which means that every child 
will receive DCA, but will also receive a placebo. And so at certain times they'll receive the drug, certain times not, but neither they, their parents, nor we as the investigators will know when they're getting which in order to uh, minimize bias. After that initial crossover double-blind phase, children will be given the option of continuing on open-label DCA. This is the study design has been, been already approved, reviewed and approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And it is randomized because you never know whether a child starts out on placebo or DCA. And the study is mainly based on evaluations conducted at home by parents or guardians. So we've developed a novel survey tool that was mandated by the FDA to be the primary outcome measure of efficacy for this trial, something that had never been done before in a mitochondrial disease. And it is called an observer-reported outcome or OBSERO measure, as shown on the next slide. This has been done because, not only from the help of the FDA, but also by uh, the largest international parent organization of PDCD families that uh, is based in Florida and now has uh, approximately 150 families, mostly from the U.S. and also even more from throughout the world as part of their organization. And in working with them and with the FDA, we have developed what we think is a, a final or near final survey measure that prospectively evaluates how a patient feels and functions at home, as required by the FDA. Never done before for mitochondrial diseases, and this means that at the end of every day, parents will take five minutes and do a daily assessment using the survey of various types of domains, as we call them, that reflect the, the general health of the, uh, of the children. They look at muscle function, neurological function, gastrointestinal function, etc., nutrition, and that data, those data are uploaded every day by a, a recorder to a central data coordinating center called the DCC that will help manage that data and ultimately use that data for our final analysis of the, of the outcome of the trial. There are patient visits as outpatients only, not as inpatients, to uh, one or more clinics over the course of about a 10-month crossover double-blind period, and then children would be seen every six months during the outpatient visit. So it's not a lot of effort uh, compared to our previous trial in terms of coming to uh, central evaluation centers at uh, academic hospitals. Most of the information is done at home. Well, there are lots of potential obstacles and limitations for conducting rare disease clinical trials. There's conflict, and has been conflict for many years within the rare disease professional community about randomized controlled trials because many, many physicians, when faced with devastating illnesses in their patients, say, look, I'm going to try something. It may work. I'm going to hope it's not going to hurt them. And so patients are put on various cocktails or various types of nostrums with the hope that they will get better. And yet, those studies are anecdotal and never, never lead to approval of any of those nostrums by the FDA because there is no rigorous scientific and ethical evaluation of their safety and efficacy. So 
this can be a problem because if many patients are taking a particular intervention or don't want to go up their, their current interventions to try a new therapy or clinical trial, that reduces the chance of recruiting sufficient number of individuals for that trial. And funding problems can delay a trial because it's so hard to get grant support for rare disease research. If you conduct a study at a single center, sometimes the FDA will recognize that as being a practical but uh, uh, unavoidable problem with rare diseases. But oftentimes, multi-center uh, clinical trials, especially late-stage trials, are, are preferred by the FDA. Eligible patients can be lost to logistics of travel and competing trials. It's hard to go back and forth to uh, a place that may be hundreds of miles away. Small populations require, as I said before, a large and effective catchment net, sometimes international, to get a few patients. There has to be consensus on the types of criteria we use in conducting the clinical trial, and sometimes that can be difficult among both investigators as well as within patients. And there's an importance of choosing validated assessment tools, and oftentimes for mitochondrial diseases, there are few, if any, appropriately validated tools and uh, that can be a, a real difficulty in terms of convincing the FDA that you have something that you could use as a metric for efficacy. And then the question is whether or not the key outcome measures are applicable to uh, a particular individual. And that's always a common concern for clinical trials, even for common diseases. Regardless of all these potential problems, applying the lessons that we've learned in developing the DCA PDCD clinical trial, we think that the time is now right to do this study, and that we think with uh, with appropriate recognition by families and commitment by families, we have potentially a sufficiently large pool of potential patients to make this feasible and doable. And what I've shown you here is that with the PDC organization's help and collaborating centers we have a number of places around the country where families shown in yellow uh, have helped us develop this survey instrument and in red, academic health centers that are willing to participate as collaborating centers for this trial. Now, actually, I'm sure that uh, if we were to, to uh, populate uh, areas of the country with uh, other markers to show where patients with PDCD deficiency existed, there would be a lot more circles to, uh, to measure. The other thing I want to mention is that uh, we're very fortunate to recently have partnered with a small biotech company at the University of Florida in Gainesville that is also in Gainesville. It's called Metazone Biotech. And Metazone Biotech is interested in helping us commercialize DCA, particularly for genotyping patients to make sure that based on their genotype, we know the appropriate dose that is safe and potentially effective for them, and ultimately in providing a, uh, the ability to provide DCA for patients in the future. That's a very important uh, uh, part of this process of ensuring that we can move from a clinical trial potentially to ultimate approval and marketing but we need your help. We need your help to advocate as family members, as caregivers. We encourage you uh, to also look at the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation's PDCD landing page, 
to get some more information about PBCD. We are always grateful for uh, private donors to help us conduct these clinical trials. They are expensive. And it's not like a toggle switch. You can't, it is like a toggle switch. I mean, you either have enough money to do the study from start to finish, or you don't. Uh, it's not as if you can get a few dollars here and a few dollars there to start something without a promise that you can finish it, that you have the funds to finish it, because it would be really unethical for uh, families to commit themselves to participate in a clinical trial and realize that at some point we might run out of support. So we ask for your participation also as potential uh, family members and who would have children who might participate in this trial. We don't need a lot of patients, but we do need patients who, whose disease uh, is well characterized, that we know what we're dealing with, uh, and can participate in this type of a study. And we finally ask your help so that we can benefit the, the world of PDCD deficiency and really get an answer about whether DCA truly is safe and effective for this, for this disease. If it's approved by the FDA, prescriptions for DCA can be covered by third-party payers. And only, and not to minimize the last benefit, and that is the altruism of pioneering the first approved therapy for any primary mitochondrial disease, and certainly the first approved therapy for PDCD. So, to come back to this original slide, energy is life. What we're trying to do is stimulate a critical enzyme in the process of energy metabolism for all cells. And as we have developed our work with PDCD for mitochondrial diseases, it has become apparent that DCA might have uh, potential in a number of other diseases, not all of which are rare. In fact, PDC is becoming a, uh, a very widely recognized therapeutic target for the potential treatment of diabetes, for heart disease, for certain lung diseases, and even for cancer and certain other conditions. So uh, the critical role of this enzyme and potentially the critical role of molecules that stimulate this enzyme has wide, uh, wide possibilities in terms of understanding disease pathology and also intervention. So with that, I thank you for your attention and I'll be happy to address any questions or comments. Thank you, Dr. Speckpool, uh, for that information and for taking us from start to finish, from the cellular level all the way to um, what what happens in, in the real world when trying to treat patients. Um, there have been a couple questions that have come in via email, and then I'll open up the lines for additional questions. Um, so one of the first questions is um, looking back at the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. Is a mutation in that complex always a nuclear DNA or an mtDNA mutation? Could you explain a little bit further about testing for that? Sure. Uh, as people know, I'm sure we have two genomes, one in the nucleus and one in the mitochondria. They are unique genomes, so the DNA is different. So the case of uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, all the components of the enzyme are nuclear encoded. And of course, that's the case for the vast majority of enzymes of the respiratory chain as well, and of all the enzymes of the PCA cycle. They're all encoded by the nucleus. 
the nuclear DNA. Great. Thank you. And then before we open the lines, um, I'm going to ask you to elaborate a little bit on uh, lactate to pyruvate ratio because that's such a common um, test for people who are being worked up for mitochondrial disease, but I think it's confusing even um, in the healthcare provider community as to uh, what the relevance is of that test and how it should be interpreted. And you can even explain a little bit about how this applies to patients with mitochondrial disorders where they also have some elevated lactate or an abnormal lactate to pyruvate ratio, even without the PDCD diagnosis. Under normal conditions, the amount of lactate in the blood of a healthy individual at rest is around 10 times higher than the amount of pyruvate. So the ratio typically is around 10 to 15 to 1. Now, both lactate and pyruvate are molecules that are susceptible to lots of things that can go on in even a normal person's life. Mild to moderate, much less heavy exercise can elevate lactate. Eating a meal can transiently elevate lactate levels. If you're sick and have a fever, an infection, if you have a seizure, or if you run a, a marathon, you can drastically elevate lactate levels. In fact, marathoners can elevate lactate levels as much as somebody with a sustained Bromwell seizure, around 20 times the, uh, uh, the upper limit of normal for a lactate level in the blood. In healthy individuals, however, because we have normal enzymes like PDC who are functioning appropriately, the lactate and the pyruvate levels are rapidly cleared from the circulation and metabolized by the mitochondria, and the normal uh, amounts and ratios of lactate and pyruvate are restored quickly. Now, in patients who have PDCD, typically it's felt that the lactate pyruvate ratio, while it may be elevated, uh, is usually within 10 to 20 to 1. In other words, the lactate level may be several times normal, but the, uh, the amount of pyruvate is proportionally increased as well. In respiratory chain diseases, whether due to nuclear or mitochondrial DNA mutations, it has often been found that the ratio is higher. In other words, the lactate level is disproportionately elevated to the pyruvate. When you come right down to it, however, because these molecules are so labile and so susceptible to modifications, and even to the technical procedures involved in drawing blood and processing the blood appropriately to accurately measure lactate and pyruvate, the diagnostic value of lactates and lactate pyruvate ratios is far inferior to standardized, validated biochemical assays of the particular enzyme in question, and particularly of molecular genetic tests that identify a particular mutation. So children with EDCD may have normal lactates and pyruvates and normal ratios, or they may have elevated same thing with uh, children who have respiratory chain defects or other types of mitochondrial diseases. So the sensitivity and the specificity of these markers are not nearly as great, and it cannot be used to make a diagnosis of a particular mitochondrial disease in lieu of having a much more rigorous and selective biochemical or molecular genetic test. 
Wonderful. Thank you. And I think that would be helpful to a lot of a lot of people. So I'm continuing to get some questions via email, but I'm also going to open up the lines and I may call on some of these folks who've been emailing. So bear with me for a couple beeps while we unmute everyone. Okay, so I got an email question from Charlie. Uh, Charlie, if you're there, would you like to ask your question? Uh, you can go ahead. Okay. So Charlie was asking about uh, diagnosis of pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency in adults and how that might be diagnosed, and also about use of DCA in adults So if you, and doses for adults. If you could talk about that. Well, the, the overwhelming, if not the, the entire population of patients who are born with genital mutations of PDC, have PDCD, are diagnosed within the first few days or months of life. Uh, however, there are individuals who are heterozygous, in other words, have a, uh, a, a partial defect of PDCD that they were born with, but that generally do not give rise to uh, any symptoms or signs of disease. However, if they were to marry a, a person with a similar heterozygous or clinically asymptomatic defect, then they have a higher risk of giving rise to a, an affected child. For, for individuals to diagnose uh, PDCD in adulthood, you go through the same process as you would for children, and that is you would need to have uh, either an enzyme measurement in white blood cells from a blood draw, from a skin biopsy, from a muscle biopsy, from other types of tissues that would then be subjected to the same enzymological and genetic testing as would occur with children. But I would say that... that um, Really, it is uh, difficult to imagine an individual who has lived a life into adulthood without any symptomatology uh, who might have PDCD. Now, having said that, there are many conditions, and I listed some of the last slide, cancer, certain lung diseases, diabetes, etc., where there are acquired defects that contribute to the pathology of these disorders in which PDCD can occur, but that's not because a person was born with a mutation of that uh, I don't know if that's right. the uh, answer to the question. Uh, maybe the uh, uh, maybe follow-up question that that person might have for me. And that leads me to my next question, which is um, a question from Jamie about a little more information about where and how you can get involved with this trial. What's your recommendation on well, the next step for someone who's interested? Sure. Then they're, they're more than welcome to contact me directly. And on the first slide, I gave my email address. I'll give it again over the phone. It's PWS, which are my initials, at usl.edu. And I'm happy to... Uh, to get information from anybody who might have an interest in possibly participating. We are, we are hopeful that uh, we would be able to start this clinical trial sometime in mid to late 2015. There's a lot to do between now and then. That includes getting final FDA approval of the protocol, uh, submitting a grant to the government to get funding for this trial, 
and getting additional uh, donations from the private sector, whether it be from uh, philanthropic organizations and from individual donors, to add to this. And the reason is because the uh, organization that would fund this trial from the government standpoint has limited amounts of funds and they have a budgetary ceiling that is far lower than what it costs to do this trial. Now, the PDCD organization that I alluded to earlier from Florida has already committed a substantial amount of money to help provide placebo and DCA for this trial. But there are many other components of the trial, particularly if one is to conduct this trial at other clinical sites around the country rather than just at the University of Florida. It's expensive to do. So during the course of between now and next summer or fall, we are hopeful and are working to try to tap the private sector community to uh, increase the, uh, uh, the potential to funding to conduct this uh, research. But contact me uh, at any time. I'm happy to receive uh, emails. Thank you, Dr. Sackpool. A uh, couple other questions. Um, let me just first open this to the audience. Would anyone like to um, ask a question of Dr. Sackpool? Yes, I would. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, my name is Marcus. I'm calling you from Sweden, actually. And first of all, thank you for a very good presentation. It was very informative and very interesting. Um, I am part of a support group for both families, parents, primarily uh, for children with mitochondrial diseases here in Sweden. I was wondering, in regards to this study or trial, um, would there be any collaboration internationally with, well, obviously, hospitals here in Sweden? Well, we certainly looked into that uh, a few years ago because we were hopeful of making this international trial. Uh, the, the great difficulty for us is in terms of uh, having approval from the regulatory agencies of the various countries and uh, the logistics of trying to do that and also meet the requirements of our own FDA in having an approved trial. So even going uh, as close as Canada uh, posed... Um, logistical and regulatory difficulties. And so we have uh, had to restrict ourselves to just doing this uh, in the United States. But having said that, and I know this is uh, not necessarily a very uh, helpful uh, alternative, we would, we would certainly be able to have subjects that they were willing and able to come to the U.S. To yeah. No, we do, we do have... Um uh, my own daughter had it. Um, it was it was scary how close the symptoms you described uh, to hers, uh, even down to the name Alexandra. Alexander. But we do have uh, a few in our uh, group that uh, has this uh, the PDCD. So I'll certainly reach out to them and and uh, just uh, let them know that it's available. And the other, other alternative, or one thing that could be considered an addition would be to conduct an additional clinical trial uh, in another country, and that would require uh, local expertise of investigators who are willing to do that with our help and with our, uh, with our guidance, and a requisite number of patients as well as the requisite amount of funding to do that study there. Yeah. Thank you. Marcus, wel Marcus, welcome from Sweden. Glad to have you joining us as well from, uh, you know. So, thank you. A great thank question. Uh, another question from the audience? Who would like to ask a question? 
Okay, I have another question that's come in over email. Um, Dr. Snackpool, we talked about BCA, but you didn't, and you mentioned the ketogenic diet. Would you go back and talk about the rationale for treating um, pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency with alternative diets and also with uh, what we call the mitococktail, which would be a combination of supplements commonly used in mitochondrial diseases like ubiquinol or ubiquinone, um, B vitamins, so forth? The ketogenic diet uh, really originated about a century ago as a treatment for pediatric uh, epilepsy. It's still being used in the treatment of epilepsy, although the biochemical understanding of the reasons for that efficacy is uh, still obscure. It was uh, in the 1970s that uh, investigators conducted an anecdotal trial of a ketogenic diet in a few patients with pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency. And by a ketogenic diet, we mean that about somewhere between around 75 to 90% of the total daily calories are provided as fats. And traditionally, it's been mostly saturated fats. The reason is, is that saturated fats, as part of their breakdown by the mitochondria, generate molecules called ketones. And you can measure those in the blood or the urine, and you can follow the the adherence of a patient to a ketogenic diet and regulate the amount of fat in the diet based on monitoring ketone bodies. Now, the biochemical and clinical rationale for using a ketogenic diet was that because a PDC deficiency limited the ability of converting carbohydrates into energy, an alternative source that the mitochondria could use for energy would be the metabolism of fats. And so, uh, it was thought that a ketogenic diet might provide that alternative energy source and then mitigate some of the clinical signs and symptoms of the disease. In fact, uh, there is a real paucity of literature, except from open-label studies, uncontrolled studies, on the effects of a ketogenic diet. It's become a common uh, dietary therapy for PDCD, but it has never undergone a trial to rigorously test both safety of long-term ketogenic therapy and efficacy in PDCD. Now, as far as uh, so-called mitococktails go, that, that is a, uh, a generic term I'm sure everybody's heard of and probably many, if not most of you, have used in your, uh, in your family members. And that comprises a number of different things uh, that's variable, but uh, ubiquinone, ubiquinol, names for coenzyme Q10, uh, is a common uh, ingredient, various types of B vitamins, vitamin C has been used, vitamin K, uh, carnitine, all common things in different proportions. Again, none of those has been evaluated in a prospective trial. The idea behind it is that a, these are naturally occurring molecules, so they shouldn't hurt you, and maybe they'll help. And the rationale as for why they help is because if you if you looked at the uh, at the second slide I showed you, where I, I showed a picture of called energy of life, and I showed that a complicated diagram. If you look at that diagram, you see in in blue lots of names of things that are populating that slide, and those are all cofactors and vitamins that are essential for uh, normal enzymatic activity. For example, for PDCD, 
thiamine is one of the critical enzymes used as a cofactor for normal PDC activity. So the idea is that the mitococktail might have enough of this stuff, enough concentration, to perhaps uh, stimulate uh, residual enzymatic activity in some of these mitochondrial enzymes that one or more of which might, might be perturbed. But again, uh, putting hard science to this and determining true long-term safety and efficacy is lacking. Thank you so much for that um, response. Okay, we're going to start to wrap up, so last chance if you have questions. Anyone else who's um, calling in have a question they'd like to ask Dr. Spackpool? Um, I would like to ask something. Go ahead. So he said that the DCA is a naturally occurring substance that's pretty much all over. Well, it's not naturally occurring. I mean, well, it's not naturally occurring, but it's pretty common, yeah. I guess. Yes, it is, but it's very, very tiny concentrations in the environment. Okay, so there is really no way to get a hold of it unless you're in one of the trials, correct? You know, uh, it's not as if uh, a... Not safely. Well, I, in, in full disclosure, I have to tell you there are websites that have come up, mostly because over the last several years, DCA has been found to have potential in the treatment of cancer. And as a result, some... Uh, websites have come up where that offers DCA ostensibly to treat animals with cancer, but for all intents and purposes, those uh, websites were generated by people who were interested in getting a hold of DCA off-label for uh, treating human cancer. And physicians can, re can obtain DCA through a chemical company that provides clinical-grade sodium dichloroacetate, uh, but it requires a, a, a physician prescription for, uh, for use if one were to go that route. Uh, again, I'm giving you this information because uh, it's out there and uh, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to keep that from you, but I must say that I'm, I'm not very uh, supportive of that mechanism through which to get DCA because it's not regulated, it's not controlled. Uh, there are issues of safety, much less efficacy that could be involved that might not be appropriately uh, regulated by people who would take DCA that way. But it can be done. Thank you. Other questions from the audience? Dr. Sekul, uh, thank you very much for all your help today. I'm just wondering what what would be the age of the oldest um, P PCDC a patient that you have treated or seen? Well, I've seen uh, I've seen uh, patients who are in their uh, in their late teenage years. In fact, now we have uh, we treated some children uh, with PDCD who were babies when we first treated them, and we continue to see them in open label studies, and they come back to us, uh, and they are now in their early 20s. Now, that's highly unusual. We would like to think that uh, the reason why they've survived this long and have done as well as they have is because of DCA, but you can't determine that with any, with any surety when you do open label studies. You can only determine that through carefully controlled uh, clinical trials, and so we have good safety data on these uh, 
chronically treated patients to allow us to, and allow the FDA actually also to be confident that uh, this clinical trial should be safe and that uh, patients should not be adversely uh, harmed by taking chronic DCA. We would like to think that uh, the drug is uh, helpful in reducing morbidity and mortality, but uh, those data must be obtained and ultimately evaluated through a controlled trial. Dr. Sackville, a good question has come in through email uh, asking about talking a little bit more about other laboratory biomarkers associated with PDCD and being a little bit more specific when you say elevated levels of, of lactate, um, that's subjective also. So could you uh, talk a little bit about, in your field of expertise, what do you consider elevated versus average and does this change in times of metabolic crisis and so forth? Well, there are no other good biomarkers for PDCD. Um, that really is a, uh, an open question right now. And I can tell you from a regulatory standpoint, the FDA does not consider any of them uh, sufficiently strong to help uh, result in approval of any type of uh, treatment for PDCD. As to what a real uh, lactate level might be, in, in a normal healthy individual, a resting blood lactate, without exercise, without eating, attained in the fasting state, would be about uh, between uh, 0 0.4 and 1 millimoles per liter. Uh, that means about um, up to about uh, 8 or 9 milligrams per deciliter. Now, if I were to eat a, a heavy meal and have my lactate level measured after that, it might increase by 50% or so. If I had type 2 diabetes, it might also increase by about 50% or so. If I had a ground mal seizure, it might increase by 10 or 20 fold. If I ran a marathon, it might increase by the same amount. If I were infected uh, or I had some other serious illness, it would increase several fold, but it's highly variable as to how high that might get. So if, I, if my blood were drawn for measuring lactate, and it were not processed appropriately, that could artifactually elevate the lactate level. Now, let me explain to you what that means because most of the time when patients come in to get their lactate level checked, it is not, it is not done under uh, optimal conditions. And what we do and what other research laboratories do is to have the patient at rest, to put a needle into a vein, allow the minor trauma and excitement and potential pain, all of which causes a stress response that can elevate lactate to dissipate. And so after about 15 minutes after the, after the uh, cannula is inserted into the vein, with minimal or no tourniquet pressure, because adding tourniquet pressure can reduce oxygen levels in the blood and artifactually elevate lactate levels. So then with the free-flowing blood, we draw we obtain blood from the syringe. We take that and put it directly into a previously ice-cold filled tube. And we stopper the tube and gently invert it back and forth. Now, why does it have to be cold? Because enzymes are inhibited by cold temperatures. Don't forget, the blood contains red blood cells, which are a major source of lactate. 
and they contain white cells, which can also, even they're taken out of the body and put into a test tube, are still viable. They still metabolize, and they can generate lysate. And so we try to, to decrease the rate of artifactual lactate production in the test tube by chilling it. And we also have at the bottom of the test tube a certain type of poison that prevents those cells in a test tube from making more lactate. Then we take that tube and we centrifuge it and we take the, the top layer away from the cells and we measure the, the lactate in that sample. Now, that's something that one does in a research setting, but that is never really done in a typical outpatient clinic. And so the lactate levels that are measured may be somewhat elevated. I'm not saying several fold elevated, but a little elevated from what they, they normally might be in, uh, in an intact individual. Great. Thank you. Um, well, Dr. Stackpole, you've been so helpful and uh, so thorough in explaining this and, and answering the questions. And we appreciate you sharing your contact information as well. Do you have any closing comments you want to share with the group? No, it's just been a, a real pleasure and a privilege to speak to you today. I'm happy to uh, take uh, further queries and also to uh, take questions about whether and how one can participate in this trial through email. So uh, thank you again, Christy, for this opportunity, and uh, thank you all for listening in. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. It sounds like you can certainly direct further questions to Dr. Stackpole, or I'm happy to be the um, middleman for that as well, and you could send those along to me. And you could uh, also be free, feel free to reach out with other ways that we might be helpful. This presentation will stay on the website, so Dr. Stackpole will hopefully be helpful for patients in the future as well. Everyone, thank you so much, and uh, please join us uh, on the other Fridays this month, same time, same phone number. We have a support group every Friday, and all are welcome just to meet and greet some other patients from around the world and ask questions and share resources and so forth. And Dr. Stackpole, it was such a pleasure to have you speak to us today. Thank you again for sharing you. your time and your knowledge with us. Everyone, please join me in thanking Dr. Stackpole for speaking to us today. Thank you, Thank you, Dr. Stackles. Thank you. Very welcome. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.